My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Hey, welcome. This is Transmissions. I'm glad to have you here with us today on the show. Chris Swanson, co-founder of Secretly Group. He's a returning Transmissions guest. He was last interviewed in one of our talk show episodes, recorded live at Gold Diggers by Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Cage. I was really excited to sit down and talk with him about 25 years of two of the flagship labels in Secretly Group, Secretly Canadian and Jag Jaguar. To celebrate their 25th anniversaries, uh, they've got a ton of things going on, including SC25 editions, which features key, secretly titles by artists like Damien Gerardo, Anoni, Richard Swift, and many more. They've got all sorts of incredible new merch, uh, with net proceeds benefiting Bloomington's New Hope for Families, which is a worthwhile charity. Uh, And of course, there's Jag Jaguar's Join the Ritual, which is a Dungeons & Dragons-inspired release featuring Angel Olsen, Bruce Hornsby, Cutworms, Jamila Woods, and many more. As a young person exploring record stores, the Secretly and Jag Jaguar logo served as hallmarks of quality for me, and it was a great time getting to settle in with Swanson to discuss the label's roots, artists like Anoni, Richard Swift, Jason Molina, Boney Vare, and more. And, uh, and yeah, it was great. It was great getting to talk with, with Chris. He's a thoughtful guy, and I hope you enjoy this chat. If you do, you might like the idea of helping us out with our independent media project here on Transmissions. We make this show for you week and week after week, and we offer it up for, for free. So if you'd like to support, you can find Aquarium Drunkard over on Patreon. Uh, and if, uh, if you don't have uh, any extra funds to, to commit to the project, totally understand that. Uh, if that's the case, maybe just uh, throw a link up. Uh, on your social media page uh, and let people know that you're listening to transmissions and that you're getting something out of these shows so thanks so much without further delay uh, let's head in here i am with chris swanson we'll speak with you more on the other side thanks so much for tuning in to aquarium drunkard transmissions chris thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on aquarium drunkard transmissions and congrats on the 20th anniversary of secretly canadian and uh, all the stuff that you guys are doing, as well as the 25th anniversary of Jag Jaguar. So this is a this, yeah, this, this is a big year. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a lot. You know, I think we're used to you know celebrating uh, the artists that we partner with, um, but it's you know we don't quite have the muscle memory to celebrate um, the things that we we and and our team do. You know, so it's it's uh, but it's been fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, the campaign to raise funds for for New Hope for Families, uh, the Every Light on This Side of Town reissue series and all the merch stuff, it, it seems like it's it's really great to see a focus on 
on Bloomington, the place where Secretly Canadian, uh, not wait, so so maybe you can help me with the chronology. Mm-hmm. In '96, you and Ben Swanson and Eric Weddle and mm-hmm. Jonathan Cargill, you all formed Secretly Canadian. Did you then move to Bloomington, or did moving to Bloomington happen first? No, I met. Uh, I, I I'd moved to uh, Bloomington for college in 1994, um, and was working at the radio station with Eric, and was working at the dormitory cafeteria with Jonathan, uh, and uh, that was my. That's how I made my CD money, and. Um, and yeah, and we just, you know, talked endlessly about music, music culture, and slowly over the course of dozens of conversations, kind of had the audacity to, to be like, you know, maybe we should go beyond, um, you know, just being kind of hyper fans and be, you know, and, and start a label. Um, and around the same time, Ben was um, contemplating where he was going to go to college, I think was kind of at a crossroads um of what to do and i um I, i'd been making him a lot of mixtapes um and sending him those from bloomington back in fargo where we grew up yeah and yeah um mixtapes that i was making plus you know recordings of my radio show that i was doing that was i was just loving at the time and so we had a just a kind of a constant musical dialogue going and i i talked you know as i told ben i was like listen we're gonna do this thing and you know it would be amazing if you'd come here and do it with us you know and ben was like all right that's what i needed you know that was that was like the uh the kind of the the sweetener that he needed to make the decision of which which way to go college wise so yeah that's awesome what kind of stuff were you playing on your radio show do you remember um, it was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, I, I oscillated between, you know, just kind of, um, indie rock at the time, you know, underground, just kind of anything on, on, on DIY labels. I was interested in all, all shapes and sizes, but I also had a separate show that was kind of more, um, Americana singer songwriter focus that I did with a friend named Kayvon. Um, we did, we did that show also. Um, but, um, so I, I was really, really drawn to distinct voices, um, and and you know just strong lyric based songs. So. Yeah, yeah. So you had you were working in radio, and and you'd also worked at some record stores, right? Is that is that right? Yeah, Ben and I um, we worked at um, it was a, a two headed beast of a record store that. Um, called roscoe's and cd exchange we both worked at that along with jason molina who when he moved to bloomington indiana he was one of the first um artists signed to secretly um and um he was working there with us also so so i'm curious what you learned i guess working in radio and at record stores that gave you the confidence to start a label uh or or, or or was it maybe less earned confidence and more just like chutzpah at that point? I mean, how would you how would you classify it? Well, no, it was I'd say it was I mean, a little bit of chutzpah for sure. We were promoting shows, you know, um, also. But I um, my second year of, of college, um, Eric and I became music directors at the radio station, ah. um, which was great. You know, we got to kind of lord over all the all the cds that made it into into the dj booth 
um, from which people would, you know, play most of their their, their shows. And, and and we'd assign the CDs for review, make sure they got in on time by release date, et cetera, et cetera. It would, you know, highlight priorities and whatnot. And um, one part of the responsibility of that was, you know, we had office hours and would take calls from from uh, from record labels and radio pluggers. And so, you know, you know, like they'd, they'd call me up and pedal their, their, uh, their new repertoire to us. And, you know, it was, it was really interesting to talk to them as a, as a second year college student and realize that they're just a few years removed from me, you know, and that there wasn't like some big gap in, you know, they're just kind of record geeks, just like me, right. they, they're just post-college, you know, and it, so I think, I think that kind of demystified it a little bit and gave us a little bit of a courage. Plus, you know, we were programming a lot of music at the radio station that was put out by really small micro indies, you know, people a lot like us, some our age, some younger. And so it really kind of, we were kind of immersed in the milieu of, of startup you know, rec, um, record label culture. So I, it just kind of felt like a natural extension. And I think the only real decisions we had to make were how many people were going to be involved there. You know, I think we had a few different, it was kind of a journey to figure out it was just going to be the four of us. At one point we had contemplated it. We had like four other friends that might join us too. And then in the early conversations about, all right, well, who are we going to sign? And we found it, it was just too sprawling. You know, it was, it was too many people um, to have a real point of view from the company, um, you know, as a record label. Um, it, was, it was how many people and then like, you know, what can we afford to put in the pot? You know, and I think we each put in $1,500, which would allow us to press our first CD and our first um, 45. And, you know, and hopefully we would sell those fast enough that we would be able to then you know, make another one and another one, you know, it was, it wasn't very sophisticated, the plan. Yeah. Um, well, well, y you mentioned that you, you know, obviously were very familiar with indie and DIY culture. What were some of those labels? I mean, did you have labels in mind as you started secretly that you, oh, yeah. that we, I mean, we were all label obsessive, you know, like, we, you know, if we were into a label, we knew every release on that on that label um you know labels like um like k records um merge records drag city was my personal favorite yeah um, at the time touch and go was huge for me touch and go and quarter stick um the whole touch and go family um they had a touch and go had a distribution company right um that was really instrumental in kind of helping shape um what became our business model um they not only had two labels touch and go and quarter stick but also distributed all of my favorite labels like the labels i just named thrill jockey uh skin graft atavistic uh and many many more and and so we just became kind of not just fans but kind of scholars of everything these labels put out you know a lot of this just really kind of overshadowed and took over my 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 college experience you know like my classes became so secondary yeah. to all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can I can imagine. I mean, there's this thing that makes a certain kind of person want to be more than a fan or more than just a listener. Uh, I wonder if, if you know, with the anniversary happening and, and sort of a reflection taking place, 
if you if you can put your finger on a little bit of what that is that inspires someone to to take the next step and and want to not just make you know not just appreciate things rather but make things and and put them out into the world what sense do you have of what was sort of motivating that for you at the time um i think it was just you know as you as you dug deeper into these the labels you started to recognize a point of view yeah you know yeah and and a consistent voice and i think um and so as i kind of went from being a deep fan of musicians which i'd been since i was little and started buying you know pilfering my dad's tape collection and, and then starting to buy tape cassettes myself but um started to shift to curators and tastemakers or gatekeepers what have you you know and and in this case record labels and i started to become kind of obsessed with like um these these people and 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 the points of view that they started to express and 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 like the you know they they'd release artists and there'd be counter you know they'd have their big artists and then there would be all these counterpoints to those artists and yeah and, and how cool it was to have that kind of um to be able to express that type of pluralistic vision and so i think if anything i almost started to become uh more exciting about that type of expression and so i think um and and wanted to do the same you know i don't think at the time it was so clear to me you know um I, i couldn't articulate it in the same way but that i think was the process that was happening in the background yeah so, so you had worked with Jason Molina at at the record store. What what was Jason like when you you met him, and what sense did you get of what kind of person he was? So we first met him. I you know when we decided like the the very first artist that I put in the kind of in the hat to be like you know when we were talking about all right we want to do this who are the artists that we would work with first the very first name that i recommended was songs of Haya. Mm-hmm. like i was in i was obsessed with the 45 that he put out on palace records will oldham bonnie prince billy's label yeah and uh there was just there were only two songs out and i just played those to death and needed more and i was like this is the guy and and i and we had a mutual friend in the musician edith frost and she, uh, we, we, she and I had become kind of email pen pals, and she told me that she she knew him and was in contact with him, and 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 put me in touch. And I sent him the most earnest, and he he was going to school at Oberlin College at the time, and I sent him the most earnest fan letter and told him about this this uh, kind of vision we had for starting secretly Canadian, and um, told him that we'd love to put out a four forty five with him, and. Um, and, you know, in, in classic Jason fashion, you know, he, he wrote back, you know, very, very quickly and he was very warm, very nice. I think really appreciated the note and, you know, and, and we kind of went back and forth and he, he eventually said, yeah, you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to work with you, but there was a test with it, you know, and he was like, I'm playing in two weeks at the show, um, at adult crash in Manhattan, um, if you drive out or if you come out, I will, uh, we can meet. And I can give you a dat tape of two new songs. <laughs> and so, um, my my brother and uh, and partner at the time, um, we drove straight to to New York and and met him. And he was just delightful, you know. And and um, the show was fantastic. His voice live just was just captivating. Um, and he, he was just such a funny eccentric guy. Um, and he he gave us he gave us the uh, the tape. 
And that was that became the first secretly Canadian release. But and it wasn't until he graduated college, like the year later, that he ended up moving to Bloomington, where we were, ah. and moved in, then moved into my place where Ben and Ben and I lived in a house and uh, started working at the record store and kind of like uh, kind of ingratiated himself into into our community. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, obviously his stature in the story of Secretly Canadian is is so mm-hmm. mythic. He's one of those artists where certainly some of the first Secretly Canadian stuff that I ever heard was. Songs mm-hmm. of Highest stuff, or maybe it was Magnolia Electrico at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, thinking back, I, I I remember. I mean, around the time that I got into Secretly, for me, Secretly was the the thing that helped me uh, sort of transition from kind of more like post hardcore emo type stuff mm-hmm. into this whole new world and. And there were all these like natural kind of connecting bridges through stuff like, you know, I was really big into Danielson family, and mm-hmm. and so there were those mm-hmm. reissues, and 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 then I got into stuff like swearing, you know, uh, swearing at wait, swearing at motorists. Am I say, yeah, 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 yep. and all that stuff. It it was so cool for me. Secretly was like the that was the thing I would look for when I went to to a record store, you know, and and that's awesome. And early on, it became apparent to me that there was this sort of whole constellation of other labels, too, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so it felt to me like just kind of like a, a whole a whole world. You talked about the kind of point of view that was important to establish as, as you guys got started. Um, what, what kind of conversations did you have with your partners about what that point of view was? Um, I think we were attracted to not just, you know, charismatic voices that had something to say, you know, that were kind of very writing great lyrics and beautiful melodies, but also kind of uh, left of center voices, you know, the voices, you know, come, growing up listening to just, you know, tons and tons of Neil Young yeah. and Bob Dylan, you know, people with traditionally kind of awkward voices sure you know? sure um but who you know became you know wrote canonical music and you know kind of like gave uh like singers that don't have conventionally you know normal voices like permission to to be in the, to be in that space you know i feel like that was really um really what 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 drew us we also were i think deeply interested in like underground music that that maybe didn't uh that would take time to reveal itself you know i think artists at the time artists like nick drake you know bubbling up um in the in the very early 2000s um yeah post post volkswagen commercial yeah, and becoming and becoming all of a sudden sounding classic, you know. Yeah, I think that was that was like the and there there were myriad others before before Nick Drake, but I think that was like the holy grail. Like, how do we participate right now in an underground culture that may someday, in the rear view, be looked back upon, you know, and 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 seem, you know, like this kind of apocryphal you know landscape yeah you know and i so i feel like you know records that maybe feel like they would stand the test of time and either seem classic or just profoundly strange and beautiful to 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 people who like to flip through records 
that was just that was like something that we wanted to participate in you know yeah. um yeah and we really cared about packaging you know and and and, and look listening to music as uh you know as best expressed or most profoundly expressed through the long form you know as an of an lp um you know i, I feel like that that was just something that we were really interested in and we also you know love to we we there were there was a thriving underground community of labels, you know, some major indie labels, um, and so it was very it was competitive. It was hard for us to go sign artists that were doing really well. We kind of had to start at ground zero, and so we were kind of always trying to. It was there was we were trying to infiltrate the scene also, you know, and try to do our best to, um, you know, to to partner with with artists that um, might help us learn and grow, you know? So, sure. Yeah. It was a process. And, um, and, you know, and we also just were so obsessed with all these other labels, you know, it was also this like thing of trying not to just be exactly like some of these labels, you know, um, and to try to stand out on our own. We took a lot of pride, I think at the time, uh, like at, by necessity at first, we, you know, we, we, we were coming up in a, in a community that was, wasn't a major market. It wasn't on a coast. Right. It wasn't a major like music hub. Um, it was landlocked in the middle of the country. Um, but it was close to, you know, it was within four to five hours of like 15 great cities, you know, right. Um, being right, right in the middle. Um, you know, they call Indianapolis the crossroads of America, you know, you, you're so close to so many places. And uh, so we, we felt connected to a lot of things, but we were still kind of operating in this tiny little village of Bloomington. And we, we started to really start to see that as, you know, how do we have this not be a limitation, but actually like a highlight um, of what we're doing and, and that we're not going to be really susceptible to maybe some of the same group think um, that we were starting to kind of pick up on from reading fanzines and talking more uh, with, with, people in the in in the music business um you know first through the radio station and then as we started to do the label and kind of expanded our community you know you start to realize ah man we maybe have this beautiful thing the fact that we're not bumping into other record label people when we go to shows right or when you're at the pizza parlor at the record store you know it's maybe a beautiful thing so i think that we kind of had this this kind of small town chip on our shoulder a little bit too you know where it's like we want to try to figure out how to even though we're coming very influenced by certain things let's follow our own trip and do it our own way yeah and um hopefully something beautiful happens you know i mean you talk about being drawn to unique voices and as i think back on some of the i mean obviously that that you know anoni record uh (laughs) i am a bird now i mean yeah jesus christ when that album came out yeah uh, I mean, it it blew my mind in such a distinct way. I mean, I had by that point, you know, new stuff that was sort of I, I understood sort of you know classic alternative roots or whatever, you know. So like mm-hmm. Lou Reed or or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and obviously stuff like Devendra Banhart and Joanna Newsom that was happening around the same time. But but man, the 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 way talk about a, a singular voice and i've already mentioned danielson family not exactly the mm-hmm. most traditional voice uh 
Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that all of that was sort of informing your decision making and that you were being drawn to these very, as you said, charismatic and also very singular sounding artists was, mm-hmm. you know, in 99, that's sort of when you formalized your partnership with Darius Van Arman of Jag Jaguar. Uh, wh- mm-hmm. What made you want to team up with him? Was it a similar sort of sense that that that, that label was also, uh, you know, simpatico in this sort of desire? Very much, you know, I mean, Darius, my, my relationship with Darius was kind of born and formed over the course of many long conversations, you know, um, some in person, you know, like when I went on tour with Songs Ohio in, um, I think it was 97, uh, and played the club he was booking in Charlottesville, Virginia, the Tokyo Rose, Um I booked the tour and was tour manager and then Darius and I stayed up all night, you know, talking about, and we, you know, and, and his, he'd put out a couple records at the time. He signed two, two artists from Virginia, the curious digit and drunk that were making just wildly beautiful, you know, music. What in Darius, I loved how he framed it. He was calling the Jag Jaguar aesthetic sentimental noise. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I love that. I, that, I love that. You know, that, um, not only did I love the music that he was, um, releasing but the packaging he was art directing um the early jag releases and there was such care you know and like with you know picking out the papers and sometimes multiple types of papers um and and just taking great pains to to make these feel like really distinct pieces that you hold in your hand tactical the tactical experience was very important to to us in the early days and and labels we were drawn to you know, recognized that and delivered that to the, to the fans. So I, I feel like there was that underground spirit. There was that, you know, startup mentality, um, you know, and just like kind of a, a general kind of like a ambition level, but also kind, you know, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that, that felt, and, and we, we, we shared a vocabulary, you know, the lexicon of, of indie labels. I mean, I feel like at that time, Drag City was the label that was um, that was just operating and just like consistently um, blowing our minds left and right. Every season there would be one one to three releases that they would put out that would just be blown away. Every time they would sign a new artist, it's like, okay, I'm gonna I have to go get introduced to my new favorite band, you know, right? Or or, or singer. And I feel like we just connected like so quickly. Um, and in the early days. Um, of secretly we you know i think we had two metrics for success um because we didn't we really didn't know what we were doing um you know there's obviously selling the number of albums you were selling was important but the way to sell a lot of records was like how many distributors did did we have in our network of our distribution network that were buying records from us right all over the world and we found that in order to grow that or to get the get the distributors to call us back to take us seriously um to to reorder to pay us or whatever we needed to have kind of a steady stream of releases um and um in order to do that you know we're like man we're only going to put out you know a few albums you know an album a season maybe you know that's not it didn't feel like quite enough so we reached out to a few of our favorite labels like jag jaguar like temporary residence limited um western vinyl 
this this label called Made in Mexico that really was uh-huh. instrumental in our early days. Dude, yeah, um, the Megalon. Made in Mexico. Made in Mexico was all that was all my favorite shit, man. I was so into the yeah. Pedro the Lion stuff, Jam- Gerardo. Yeah, J- James Morelos, who started that label, he he's he's a visionary. You know, so we started a distribution company, not not be out of some. We didn't have some. It was really a means to an end to have more albums to pedal to these distributors to, to to look a little bit bigger it's kind of a school of fish mentality and we talked these labels into letting us sell their stuff for them we're like hey listen there's four of us and we want to spend all day doing this you know and we're looking for meaningful things to do with our hours there's one of you these were all kind of run by one person right and you're so busy why don't you let us be your sales force you know we'll take 50 cents a unit or 25 cents if it's a 45 you know? yeah wow um it was like nothing, and and then we'll be your sales force. We'll you know you will we'll warehouse it, we'll ship it, we'll do everything. And, and we didn't realize it really at the time, but we were basically, you know, copying a touch and go distribution model. You know, um, but that's how we got really close with some of these labels, and and you know, and, and our, our the our early relationship with Darius really started to to blossom and a trust built, and you know, eventually when, um, you know, it he felt like it was kind of time for a next chapter, and th- you know that would be easier with a, with a partner. Um, you know, he moved to Bloomington and we became partners with him. And so many of those relationships that you're talking about forging, you know, exist to this day. I mean, continue in terms of partnerships with, mm-hmm. with so many of those labels and, and secretly yeah. group and this distribution network that is, you know, got everything from obviously huge artists like, you know, Phoebe Bridgers and Japanese breakfast on dead oceans. And, you know, all the way down to just these like really cool boutique type labels. Um, I'm thinking of all sorts, you yeah. know, all sorts of stuff. So that's, I mean, no, I mean, some of these, some of these labels, like, like Jeremy Divine at Temporary Residence, um, like we've, you know, we've been working with Jeremy since 1997. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was like, wow, it's, it's incredible. I mean, did you guys have a sense at the time that the, that the major label world, uh, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to ask, like, were you guys, like, you know, uh, able to see the future or whatever, but did you guys, was there a sense that that there was room, if everybody sort of teamed up, you know, to sort of, like, actually make a run at, at sort of, I guess, stealing the, the Major's Thunder to some degree? Was there any sense of that? Just, just because so many, kind of- yeah. Not really in those terms. I mean, we were in opposition to them, of course. Kind of both, both politically and yeah, and you know, on a survival level, you know, like I mean, we defined ourselves as indie, um, which is you know, in stark contrast to we're not major, you know, um, to the majors. Um, but I, it felt like two worlds. You know, you were either in the major paradigm or you were in the indie paradigm. You know, it, it really. They weren't they weren't the same, and um, they, they operated by different standards. had had different north star, yeah, different metrics for success, everything. So we weren't we never felt like we were trying to overtake them or anything. But it did, you know. We did have a political, you know. We grew up buying, you know, like like Discord was a huge, huge influence on us, and so we did have we did feel like there there we did have a political motivation in trying to kind of democratize the process um, to that you don't have to work with the man, which is the majors trying to, you know, we really, we really were emboldened by the 
50 50 profit split model that that labels like discord and touch and go were very vocal about yeah um that sort of that sort of symmetry in partnership with artists um felt important and so i i do feel like you know like they were the the majors were like the you know the boomers and we were like the next gen um yeah you know and and i think more than anything what we would do is we would try to i think where we were where the chip on our shoulder came in wasn't so much anti-major which we were but it's like we're not who are we to compete with the majors it was more we would you know compete with major indies you know um and try to uh try to define how we were different than labels like sub pop or whatever who are you know we love sub pop they're they're amazing but you know if if we were trying to sign a band and, and you know and they knew somebody on sub pop you know like they'd have to exhaust that opportunity you know that that avenue before they would consider working with us you know well, so well sure it's just, yeah. and i mean at that time th- there was like you know there was a cross-pollination of those big indies with the majors right where like everybody yeah. was was, mm-hmm. was working not everybody i'm sorry but like uh you know matador sub pop all were sort of like in you know, in conjunction with with majors, epitaph, epitaph mm-hmm. like exploring those those distribution channels and all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, was that something that I mean, was I mean, I'm sure you guys got got offers, and obviously there have been sort of collaborative projects in the time since. But were you were you sort of opposed to that model at the time? I, I think we were, but it was. I think it was merely. We definitely were. You know, in our rhetoric. When, when talking to artists, you know, but I, I you know, honestly, I, I think it wasn't so much based out of uh, tested principles as much as it was, you know, trying to define ourselves against them so that we might have some, you know, we were trying to just define to artists like what, what art, what being a part of our community would be like. You right. Know? Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, and I, in hindsight, we ended up working with the same distributor that those labels we just talked about worked with. You know, with, through the Warner Music Group, eventually, um, which we don't work with anymore. We're now fully independent. Right. But it's funny how um, you know it, it is kind of funny how um, what one one day um, you're like that's that's amoral, and this is why you shouldn't work with you know creeps like that, and then you know you know, two years later when you have the opportunity to um, <laughs> be a part of that same distribution family and realize that that's actually going to be good business for you and your artists, you know, um, sure. and it's going to, is going to expand their opportunities as well as your own, how quickly you're like, okay, okay you know, <laughs> we're going to embrace this and, and figure it out. And you know, it's just like early, that early nascent kind of naivete and trying to figure out what, and, and really figure out where your North star is. Um, and actually test it and and have it tested right i think those are the um you know that's when you kind of i think grow a little bit more wise which i feel like we've had that opportunity in the subsequent years you know over the last but i think it's really about curating you know like like who do you want to work with and what services can you provide them right you know right um and and it's always a test you know it's like it's part of being you know in in the you know, maybe any business, but definitely in like the entertainment or creative um, culture business um, that you, you have at any point, you have like myriad, almost infinite uh, list of, of services you would like to add or experts you would like to add to your team, you know, but you have a, um, a finite amount of resources 
to afford that, you know? Sure. And so sure. it's always kind of a balance of like, okay, you know, what's the right size and what's the right amount of services to offer artists, you know? Right. Well, I want to ask a little bit, I mean, we could go, it would be so easy and enjoyable to just go through all of the various artists, you know, and say like, mm-hmm. what do you think about working with Boney Vare? What do you think about working mm-hmm. with Yoko Ono? What do you think about working mm-hmm. with, you know, there's like a, there's a billion, you know, a billion, not a billion, but a lot of artists that we could talk about. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask though about when I think about secretly, you know, I think about Jason Molina in terms of mythic status. Mm-hmm. I also think about Richard Swift because Richard Swift was one of those dudes that I followed his transition in real time Mm -hmm. from small indies like Velvet Blue Music to working with Secretly. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was this, one of the first times that I experienced a thing where an artist that I knew, you know, and loved deeply, all of a sudden was getting exposed you know, exposed to new audiences and people were, were getting clued into what he was doing. I wonder how you first encountered Richard Swift. I was, uh, it was, it was, it was actually kind of a beautiful, um, moment. Um, I, Jens Lechman, we had just started working with him. Hmm. He'd been sending us CD demos. He was a, he was a fan. He was buying our, a lot of our records, direct mail order from Sweden he started to in his orders he started to send us cds of his music and and we're like whoa we were like man he sounds like he's got to be a 40 year old guy who grew up listening to fred neal and right nilson you know and, and then we found out he was a teenager from gothenburg you know anyway we we ended up falling in love with his music and with with him as a as a person he came out to indiana um i don't know what year this was maybe 2002 or three to um enjoy like a, a thanksgiving a, a couple of weeks during thanksgiving and you know with with uh, mine and ben's family um we set up a show in northern indiana at the firehouse and then set up an in-store at luna music in indianapolis which at the time was the best record store in the midwest you know just just the incredible store set up an in-store and while he was playing the in-store, um, I, I'm like, you know, looking at all the records, flipping through the bins. Um, and on the new release wall, which was all CDs at the time, I see this double wide fatty CD, you know, like the Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, yeah. Bob Dylan Grace, it's volume two style, thick ass, oh, yeah. double wide, fatty double disc on the wall with, with the which was Richard Swift's The Novelist and Walking Without Effort. And I was like, what is this? Is this a reissue? This looks like, you know, looks like a Leonard Cohen record. Right. 60, 67 or something, you know, it just, and it, you know, and I was just like, immediately it had this antique quality to it. And he had this great look and the song titles are incredible. And I, I'm like, all right, buying this, you know, I didn't even need to listen to it. Um, so put that in my stack. Um, you know, it's like, oh, the wonders of a new release wall um, and an impulse buy back. You know, it takes me back to when I used to go to like other music and just walk out with a stack. But uh, oh, yeah. Anyway, in the drive back after after the in-store, Jens and I played this thing uh, all the way through. You know, it's two EPs, one on each disc. And, you know, it, it filled our drive and we were just taken over by this voice. You know, it had some Tin Pan Alley sounds. It had some 
some, you know, he definitely had like completely devoured the 60s, 70s post folk boom singer songwriter canon. Yeah. It just had so much. The production was so beautiful and we were like enraptured. The next day I wrote, I wrote him. I, I can't remember how I found him on the internet, wrote him. Um, and we started a conversation, you know, and it was just, it went along swimmingly and we ended up saying, Hey, we'd like to, we'd like to reissue this, uh, and release your new music. And we ended up forging a partnership. Um, and it was from the get, he was just one of the sweetest, funniest people. Um, and yeah, just became a dear friend over the years, um, and became a really, a real central friendship and, and, and partnership for us. Um, yeah, that was really critical. Yeah. It's so hard not to just sort of be overtaken by melancholy thinking about, you know, the loss of Swift, the loss of Molina, <laughs> these, these sort of North star artists for you. Um, you know, and I don't know what there is to say about any of that, but I will say that I prepared for this interview by just listening to a playlist of my favorite Richard Swift jams. Uh, no, that's, what I, that's, that's hard to do. Which is, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's easy to do. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, I was like, yeah. I was like, I got to get in the right mood. And I was like, I guess I'm just going to put on that playlist that I made for Aquarium Drunkard when he passed because, mm-hmm. because so much, I mean, so much of the secretly, you know, ethos I feel like is expressed through through his work in a way because it's because it's funny and it is uh very touching and sweet occasionally Mm -hmm. very very um you know deep but also irreverent in a way and uh and when i think back on 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 the way that the the secretly group and the labels have have sort of uh been propelled along by all of these incredible signings you know uh and all of Mm -hmm. these people that you've worked with I just think about how, you know, when I listen to Swift, I can hear at least, you know, in a personal way, I can kind of hear that through line, you know, or it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see why the label that thought this was good wanted to go and 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 re-release uh, Yoko Ono's records that have been for so, <laughs> for, have been yeah. for so long, you know, uh, sort of shat on by this by the rock critic mm-hmm. not not just rock critics a lot of people you know like mm-hmm. but it's yeah. like i i love that underdog spirit in a way you know and it's like it yeah. it can be really easy i definitely can be easy when you've got like you know bon Iver nominated for grammys or whatever to sort of feel like well the underdog period has passed but in a weird way it hasn't really because they're still you guys are still working with artists who are very scrappy and very like you know uh, boots on the ground in yeah. terms of getting out there, but but yeah, that underdog, uh, idiosyncratic, weird thing. I think about somebody like Swift, who who, you know, uh, who was like forging a new identity for himself, like in a real sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he had many many different shapes over the years, you know. Yeah, and and sounds. It's kind of funny when you're talking about the you know the the sound of some of these artists, like Anoni, famously. You know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, around the, the time when, yeah, you know, after we'd reissued the Blue Angel and put out I'm a Bird Now, yeah, um, just said, like, would, would just remark consistently, you just love the three-legged dogs, don't you guys? You know, <laughs> and, and, and the most in the most loving way, you know? Yeah. It's just like these, these, these wild-ass voices that, like, uh, that, that, you know, don't really... F- 
fit the mold, you know, and Swift definitely had that. And what Swift was so great at, and he came from a line of like, he wasn't the first producer we worked with that, you know, we were able to send a lot of different artists that we worked with uh, to collaborate with. Like Dan Burton was one of the first musicians, Dan from uh, Adivin and Early Day Miners. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Swift, you know, I think in the uh, 2010s was like our go to, we, you know, like when, when we, we, when we heard a great new artist, you know, after we heard what he did with Gardens and Via on their debut. Yeah. Um, and he's the one who sent us Foxygen and, you know, and, and like we saw what, what he contributed to their wild sound, you know, kind of helping them give them permission to be wild and weird, um, as their platform grew as also like help them kind of get a little more clarity without losing the, the fuzziness, you know? Right. Um, but then we started to be able to send other artists who seemed like who had great songs and a great voice, but maybe weren't exactly sure what the sound was then their next sound would be what, what the next chapter would sound like, you know, whether it was Damien Dorado or Cayucas or, you know, myriad artists that we worked with. So yeah, he very much became like w- one of a few dominant sounds in our, in our family. Yeah. I mean, Dorado, one of my all time favorite artists, one of the most important artists, you know, in my, in my life. Um, talk about, uh, talk about a rebirth in a way you know because like the the records that he made before swift for sub pop for tooth and nail you know and then for mm-hmm. for secretly as well i love those records some of some of them mm-hmm. are some of my favorite damien records but the sense of freedom that he seemed to uh catch working with swift was mm-hmm. just like so inspiring and and it's funny too because we're talking about that three-legged dog thing it's real easy again to think about Bon Iver and Justin Vernon, you know. But when that record came out, the, that kind of voice wasn't a, a thing in indie rock, really. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. that's just such a that's such a cool through line through like, through the catalog. Like that overt, that overt and consistent of a falsetto um, felt like whoa, he's really pushing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in a way that I remember it, when I first put that on, I was working in a record store, and I kept hearing everybody talk about that for Emma forever ago, and I put it on, and, uh, you know, there were, like I, I liked it like right away, but there were some other kids in the record store with me who were like, what is going on? Like, what is this? Like, what did you, what did you put on? Like, is this some like yeah. weird? Cause there's a soul, there's a soul quality to it. That's very yeah. unexpected. Um, it was like a Donnie, Donnie Hathaway vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But then also this sort of like, which was honestly f- when, when the, after that record, the sort of, uh, lone acoustic guy in the woods thing went like right out the window. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't super shocked by that, you know? And I don't, I, I can't imagine that y'all were either. I mean, we knew people, we knew what audience would love it. You know, like I think by 2007, when, when we partnered with Justin, we knew there was an audience for it. We knew it was an audience that we regularly, you know, catered to um i think what blew us away was how that how many other audiences were into it you know right that's where like the way that it crossed over into um into so many different pockets you know of of uh you know so many different record collections that 
was like wow yeah because you know we you know like i said you know from from our from the get-go we were like we're gonna release albums that might take a while and by a while decades to be understood and embraced by by a wide um by a wide uh audience you know but here was one being embraced from the get you know and it was like wow okay this is amazing you know it, it really it really defied expectations and um you know we learned so much right from justin and and watching him not only just the things you learn when 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 you start to sell a lot more records just about the business of of bigger business but also just like how to navigate that as an artist watching him navigate it um with dignity and trying to maintain keep everything intact you know and follow a north star right you know especially when 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 all of a sudden you start to see oh there's four north stars which one do i follow you know sure Um, sure yeah i mean when you're contributing to like kanye west records kanye of course also known for sampling stuff from the from the numero group catalog so i mean you've got Mm -hmm. multiple multiple kanye crossovers but um Mm -hmm. you know the thing is chris there's so much that we could talk about and and i wanted and intended to spend uh so much more of this interview talking about your music supervision, but we're going to have to skip over it, I think, in order to make time for a few other things. So maybe you could come back and we could talk about that in, in the future. But cool. um, but I but I am really interested. Right now, it, it feels like we're at a little bit of a crossroads in terms of physical music stuff. The, the vinyl backlog, uh, there are multiple reasons for it, and there are, uh, you know... Some of them unavoidable due to the to the you know intensity of the pandemic and supply chains being completely disrupted and all that. But I wonder one of the things that's always been really interesting about Secretly Group is this willingness to sort of look forward and look ahead. What sense do you have of you know artists at this point sort of recognizing that while vinyl is one tool that we might be able to use, there are there are others as well. What exploration do you think we're going to start to see as people, you know, recognize that maybe not everybody can press vinyl? Do you think that there are novel and interesting physical, you know, forms that that aren't being explored to their full extent? I, I yeah, I don't know how new this is, but I think it's maybe a little bit. My curiosity is maybe focusing a little bit more on it lately. But I think in in lieu, like it, let's just say that nine month period where an artist, you know, really wants to be expressing something, expresses something new to their fans, expressing something in a physical and tactile way, um, you know, and not just ephemeral and streaming or and whatnot or on social media. Um, but they're wait, they, but they're in a nine month wait for physical vinyl. I do think like right now there's like so many examples of artists really uh catering and doing limited limited runs of beautiful merchandise or collaborations with with uh with smaller companies whether it's you know a coffee bean company a a roaster right or um you know just or or doing little um little um lithographs or you know um limited edition books you know whatever i just think there's so many ways um that especially during you know, I think COVID kind of, you know, put everyone in front of their physical uh, media again. 
for the first time in a, a profound way. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are got back into collecting books or and whatnot. And I, I feel like um, I, I just feel like you know artists can can really definitely engage in that. You know, and, and with Instagram, it's so easy to do limited edition runs of you know of of, of you know doing a new hoodie or whatever but you know maybe collaborating with a designer that people are messing with i just think there's so many different um media forms right now like watching um eric dynas who is anr and, and uh, communications director for jag jaguar watching him just literally frolic through the jag jaguar ecosystem and collaborating with all with 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 all, all these favorite um, visionary artists yeah. in so many different mediums um, over the course of this year for each of the four seasons uh, um, to celebrate Jag's 25th has been a delight, you know, right. whether it's collaborating with a, um, with winemakers or with um, coffee bean roasters or um, creative directors for um, a merch line or poets or you know um um new age um um artists or you know it's just like or podcasters i feel like it's just been like um you know it's been the most delightful thing to watch him stitch together something that both feels wholly very jag jaguar it's all imbued with the spirit of jag um but also kind of um unconstrained by um you know by traditional commercial needs, you know, because yeah, this is, absolutely. It's, it's, it's all, it's all a celebration, you know? Um, and I, I can just see, I'm, and so my mind has definitely been opened up to like, Oh, you know, you know, you have, uh, you know, like indie band X and, you know, they have their stuff streaming. They don't, they can't, they don't have anything on Bandcamp right now. They want to be on Bandcamp, not just digitally, but also physically, but they don't have any, it's going to be ages before they have anything and nine months in, in the life of a, of a musician is, you know, it's an eon, you know, but I do think that there's, you know, there's so many other ways to collaborate and to, to, to um, express yourself with your fans in a tactile way. Yeah, that's, 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 that's absolutely right. And I think we're in such a, a an open and fascinating time, you know, it's, 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 it's exciting to wonder where things might go. Um, you know, and on that on that note, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit, or just ask a little bit about the fact that that when secretly started, immediately the sort of collective action aspect became a, a, a part of what you were doing. You immediately started working with other people, teaming up with other labels, building up this this you know more substantial catalog through sort of working with other people who were doing things, you know, autonomously, but then kind of banding together, you know, uh, earlier this year, uh, or, or wait, was it last year? Anyway, Secretly's, Secretly's uh, employees unionized. And to me... That was this year, yeah, yeah it was, in March. It, it was earlier this year. And I, I, you know, I don't know. It was such an exciting and interesting thing to see, you know, from the outside. And... And I just wonder if, as we look at the, at the risk of throwing too huge a topic onto the table, you know, mm -hmm. as we look at the the many challenges that obviously independent artists face right now, 
<laughs> do you think that in a world that has become increasingly corporatized, more of mm-hmm. that sort of collective action and and you know maybe not necessarily unionization, but certainly that's a mm-hmm. part of it. Do you feel like that's mm-hmm. just really going to be essential as we move forward and as you know? I th- I think about how Disney owns you know what everything, uh, mm-hmm. a- and and how if if there's going to be any sort of a bulwark against that, it, it it's going to need to be independent creators sort of working in concert with each other and being willing to band together. You know, do you have any thoughts on on that insanely uh, gigantic topic that I'm tossing out there? Well, no, I mean, I think it's definitely, you know, whether it's, you know, expressed through, you know, formal unionization um, or in more, uh, in less formal ways. Yeah, I agree. I think that this, like, I feel like um, this, the younger generation now, you know, is, is more, you know, statistically predisposed to embracing um, collective action than, than, than its predecessor generations, you know? So it's, it's definitely absolutely going to be a part of our landscape at an increasing level, I think, you know, and I think, you know, for us, um, you know, we, when, when we do, when we do, uh, deals for partnerships with artists you know artists they have lawyers you know um, we, we make sure that happens when we do deals with um with record labels um to distribute them and have them become part of our distributed family they're represented by by lawyers you know um and i think the one thing that you know became really clear to us when um uh you know when when uh, the when the union formed was that our staff um at secretly um was the was was a really big part of our world that didn't have um that sort of representation um yeah. and so there there really was a power imbalance and and so um being able to collectively bargain is a means um to having that sort of um representation and so i think that whether it's you know whether it's through unions or other ways i think that that the uh you know that all, all sorts of companies or, or, or groups or just so many endeavors are going to, I think, be faced with ways to make sure that um, how do you how do you write um, how, how do you uh, how do you acknowledge power imbalance, especially when when uh, negotiating terms for things as important as as you know as uh, compensation yeah. and whatnot and, and my- myriad other things, and so. Yeah, I think this dynamic is only going to grow. It's going to, you know, I think where it, it just felt it it felt uh, surprising because it just it, it hasn't been a part of the the rubric of of the, the underground music community, you know. And so I was like, oh wow, this can happen here too, you know. I you know I was I was I was blown away by it, and I, I don't think that you know this is going to be the last. No, so. no, I don't think so. Um, well, Chris, it's been such such a blast talking with you there's so many yeah. so many other questions i i have i want to close on a note you mentioned that that one of the things early on and secretly that you were uh that you sort of had encompassed by the vision was this idea that maybe certain records were going to take 30 years to catch on um i i wonder if as we head out of this this talk you might throw out one either artist or album 
that for whatever reason just hasn't quite caught on the way that certain others have that you would I- encourage people to go back and check out from the vast secretly uh, back catalog, where would you like to point people uh, in terms of something that you've, you've put out? Um, two albums. Um, one is uh, by Indianapolis-based band called Marmoset. It's, it's an album called Record in Red. It's an absolute masterpiece front to back. Um, Secretly Canadian released it, I think, in 2002 or three. Um, it's a masterpiece. Um, that's like absolutely a go-to. I listen to it several times a year still 20 years deep um another is um an album from 20 or from sorry 1999 that jag jaguar reissued in 2001 uh, it's by a glasswegian um artist named richard young it's an album called Safi. it's a three song um folk masterpiece it's you know very much if you love nick drake um it's it fits in that zone um and we as part of um jags 25th we did a um collaboration with hypnotic brass ensemble we had them they they covered um they did they did the instrumental they're a chicago-based jazz group um they did the instrumentals and then we had um, moses sumney perfume genius um and sharon van etten um each do lead vocals on one of each of the three songs um and, and and that album is is uh that original album is you know just an absolute masterpiece well that's awesome those are actually two uh records that i that i haven't spent much time with so i'm excited that that's what i'm gonna do oh you're in for a treat now that now that yeah what as soon as i hop off i'm gonna i'm gonna put that richard young album on and uh yeah Chris, it's been it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I I appreciate yeah, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, likewise. You have a good weekend. You too. Chris Swanson here on Transmissions. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Andrew Horton edits our audio. Visual assets by Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls. Our executive producer and top of the show announcer and main man is Justin Gage. He founded Aquarium Drunkard in 2005 and hosts the Essential Aquarium Drunkard show on Sirius XM every Wednesday night. I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, And I know there is no shortage of things you could be listening to right now, so we're honored to have your attention. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can find my contact info over at Aquarium Drunkard. You can find me on most of the social media platforms. And of course, Aquarium Drunkard is on Patreon if you want to support us further. All right, next week on the show, we've got the incredible Nick Lowe, another return guest. So until we're back in the same zone, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions.